There should be plenty. Yeah. All right, as the uh, remaining handouts are being distributed, um, let's go ahead and start this morning uh, praying together. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for um, this gift of rest that you give us on the Lord's Day. We're thankful for uh, the way in which you call us into your presence and promise to bless us again through your Son, Jesus Christ, as you renew your covenant with us. Father, as we prepare even now for that um, renewal, um, we pray that you would dwell with us by your Spirit as we Consider especially the, the natural world, the creation that you've made, and our call to understand it. We pray that you would grant us wisdom as we think about the connection between the things that we believe are true about you and about this world and um, the, the nature of scientific inquiry. We pray that you would be with us in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so we are progressing week by week through the lectures on Calvinism by Abraham Kuyper, which were delivered in 1898 at Princeton Seminary. Um, and, and as we've talked about, Kuiper is really, his goal here is to present Calvinism as a life system. And Calvinism, by Calvinism, he doesn't mean some kind of narrow, um, uh, pedantic sort of expression of Christianity, but really what he's trying to express is what he sees as the broad stream of Protestant Reformed faith um, that was so important in the development of Europe and then um, into the United States as it was brought here by immigrants. Um, this, this, for Cal, this for Kuiper, this understanding of Calvinism, is, is that Calvinism is a, is a life system, as he talks about in his first uh, lecture, that it is not um, simply uh, things that you believe to be true about how you're saved with God. Um, it's not just simply um, a tulip, so to speak, um, the five points of Calvinism, but Calvinism is a life system, an approach to all of life. Um, not merely the quote-unquote spiritual, but also uh, the secular, the worldly, everything that has to do with your life um, is influenced by your view of what the scriptures teach about God and about humanity. And he really wants to apply that in different ways. So the last two weeks, we've talked about Calvinism and religion, um, Calvinism and politics, and today we come to Calvinism and science. Um, we'll take, as I mentioned, two weeks off the next two Sundays and then the first Sunday in January um, Kuiper has a lecture called Calvinism and Art, which I think is a really helpful um, perspective on what, what does what we believe about God and the scriptures and the Christian faith have to do with how we view the arts and artistic expression and, and all of those things. But for today, he wants to talk about science. I think this is actually a really helpful lecture because, um, as you may have heard, there's this idea out there in our culture that Christians don't care much for science, Right? Um, if you are a, a conservative, orthodox, uh, Bible-believing Christian, then uh, science is the enemy, and you are trying to undermine science, actually, probably, by your very presence. And um, th this is, you know, one of the great supposed conflicts of modernity, is the conflict between the Bible and science, or faith and science, or orthodox Christianity and science. But Cal uh, Calvin, Kuiper, really wants to debunk that idea. He wants to argue um, uh, with everything that he has, um, that Calvinism, um, historic Christianity, 
and the things that we believe about God's sovereignty and his commitment to creation, his commitment to renew all things in Jesus Christ, including the created world, means that, that we love science and that actually there is a distinctive way of, of pursuing scientific inquiry um, as a person who believes those things that is actually going to lead you into truth, um, scientific truth, in a different kind of, fundamentally different kind of way. So that's, that's the overall sort of argument that, that Kuiper wants to make in this lecture, and I just want to walk us through some of the things um, that the way in which he builds that argument I think is really helpful and will be good for us to meditate on. So he begins in the first part of this lecture by talking about Calvinism's love for science, quote-unquote. You can see that at the top of your first page. He says, I must also show you why it is that Calvinism cannot but foster love for science. Just think about that statement for a moment, right? He says, there's no other option for Calvinism or for historic Christianity but to foster a love for science, an affection for it, a, a passion for it. How now can we prove that love for science in that higher sense, um, which aims at unity and our cognizance of the entire cosmos, right? That is what for Kuiper science is. It is understanding the cosmos, understanding the created world understanding the natural world that God has given us. That, that, that is the, the fundamental aspect of scientific inquiry, is understanding the things that God has made. He says, how can I prove that this is effectually secured by means of our Calvinistic belief in God's foreordination? Remember, this for Calvin or Kuiper is the fundamental principle of Calvinism. Um, it is um, the, the sovereignty of God over all things, that God has ordained all things. And so how is that principle, that fundamental organizing principle of Calvinism connected to a love for science. He says, um, if you now proceed to the decree of God, what else does God's foreordination mean than the certainty of the existence and the course of all things, i.e. of the entire cosmos, instead of being a plaything of caprice and chance obeys law and order? and that there exists a firm will which carries out its designs both in nature and in history. Thus you will recognize that the cosmos, instead of being a heap of stones loosely thrown together, on the contrary, presents to our mind a monumental building erected in a severely consistent style. Do you see the argument that he's making there? He's saying that, that, that our belief in God's sovereignty and his foreordination his eternal decree, which is constantly being worked out through not only creation, but also his act of providence, which maintains creation in this world, means that there is a consistent principle that we can inquire about, that, we can, that, that, that nature and the, the created world is not just a random um, sort of tossed together reality, but there is actually a fundamental principle behind it that we can seek to discern and understand. So he sees these things, like actually God's sovereignty is the fundamental principle of science, that it, in many ways scientists are seeking to discover the will of God, right? They're seeking to discover the will of God as he created the world originally and as he providentially upholds the world through quote-unquote natural processes, right? And we know that, you know, we can use that shorthand if we want, but what we mean by natural processes is uh, the upholding of the universe by the word of power spoken by Jesus Christ, right? The ascended Christ upholds all things. There's no such thing as natural processes, if by which we mean by that, you know, just things happening without the direct um, support and maintenance and, and, and will of God explicitly. 
Um, and, and Calvin actually, or Kuiper actually says that it's because of this belief that we can be scientific, that we can investigate and, and expect to discover true things because God is maintaining the order of the world. He says the entire, and, and his argument basically is this is the, if you don't have this assumption that there is some fundamental principle out there to understand, then what is the point of doing scientific inquiry, right? The entire development of science in our age presupposes a cosmos which does not fall prey to the freaks of chance, but exists and develops from one principle according to a firm order aiming at a fixed plan. Calvinists have never thought the idea of the cosmos lay in God's foreordination as an aggregate of loosely conjoined degrees, decrees, right? God's decree isn't over here one day and then over there the other. But they've always maintained that the whole formed one organic program of the entire creation and the entire history of that creation. Faith in such a unity, stability, and order of things personally as predestination, cosmically, as the counsel of God's decree could not but awaken as with a loud voice and vigorously foster love for science. Right? If you believe that there is this fundamental work of God that is consistent and knowable in his creation, wouldn't you want to discover it? Wouldn't you want to understand it? That is the connection between Calvinism and what he says, how we should love science, how we should love this opportunity we have to understand God's ways through his creation because we know that he is acting even now in it. Without a deep conviction of this unity, this stability, and this order, science is unable to go beyond mere conjectures. And only when there is faith in the organic interconnection of the universe will there also be possibility for science to ascend from the empirical investigation of the special phenomena to the general. Right? That's what science is. You're, you're observing circumstances and trying to extrapolate from that a general principle that is behind what you're observing. And how can you do that unless you believe there is a fundamental consistency about the universe? from the general to the law which rules over it, and from that law to the principle which is dominant over all. The data, which are absolutely indispensable for all higher science, are at hand only under this supposition. He's saying you can only trust the data to the extent that you believe that there is something organizing that data, something fundamental, something, a common principle and law that is behind it. And he says, Calvinists find this in the will of God, in his decree, his ordination, his act of providence. Any questions about that? Does that make sense? Do you see the argument that he's making there? This, this idea, this, this commitment, this belief that we have, hold by faith is something that's actually fundamental for our scientific understanding. All right, so, so that's the first plank, so to speak, of, of Kuiper's argument. The second plank is that he believes that Calvinists are those who particularly should love God's creation and think that it matters. And basically his argument is, if God's creation matters, then science matters. Because science is not just some abstract philosophizing about whatever, but it's actually an inquiry into the very um, details of the matter, the material things that God has created. And his argument is, if you're a Calvinist, you should care about material things. Because God isn't just, you know, winding down the earth to a, to a 
you know, fiery death and we all sort of get hydro, you know, transported somewhere else, some fundamentally different place where we don't have bodies or material stuff. No, he says, according to Calvin and Calvinism, our understanding of creation is that God loves creation and that he's so committed to it that he intends to make it all new through his son. The material body of Jesus Christ is at the center of our faith. And so materialism actually, I mean, you know, sometimes we use that word materialism as a, as a dirty word, right? We don't want to be materialists. Well, in some sense we do because God loves material. God loves matter. He made it, right? We don't want to divorce it from him, from his upholding of it, from his care for it. But we are, in a sense, materialists because we love the created world and things that God has made because God is committed to them not just for a span of time, but for eternity. Let's hope that he is, because that means he's committed to us, right? To our bodies and our souls. All right, so let's unpack this a little bit. Calvinism alone, by means of its dominating principle, which constantly urges us to go back from the cross to creation. So he really thinks this is a, and I do think he's right, this is the fundamental insight of Calvinism that we don't, in the Christian faith, simply cling to the cross as the, as the fulfillment, and the, or it is the fulfillment, but it's not the, it's, not the, it's not the entire thing. We have to go back behind the cross, back to creation, and see what God was doing in creation in order to properly understand the cross. And no less by means of its doctrine of common grace, through open again to science the vast field of the cosmos, now illumined by the Son of Righteousness. So as we see the cosmos through the cross, through the Son, of whom the Scriptures testify that in Him, in Christ, are hid all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's what Paul says in Colossians, right? That in Christ are hid all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I sincerely believe, and I hope you do too, that Paul wasn't just talking there about spiritual wisdom and spiritual knowledge. Right? But all wisdom, all knowledge about economics, about biology, about sociology, about whatever, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in the person of Christ and the one who created all things. Right? Paul testifies that all things were created by Christ and consist by him. And further, that the object of the work of redemption is not limited to the salvation of individual sinners. It is so important that you hear that, right? The object of the work of redemption is not limited to the salvation of individual sinners, but extends itself to the redemption of the world. That's what we believe as Bible-believing Christians, that God will redeem the world, all that He has made, and to the organic reunion of all things, right? All things, the entire universe, all things in heaven and on earth under Christ as their original head. Christ himself does not speak only of the regeneration of the earth, but also the regeneration of the cosmos, Matthew 19. Paul declares, of course, in Romans 8, the whole creation groans, waiting for the bursting forth of the glory of the children of God. (coughs) That creation actually has (coughs) this expectation that it will be renewed um, through through Christ himself, and they wait for that. All creation longs for this renewal. In keeping with this, the final outcome of the future, foreshadowed in the Holy Scriptures, is not merely spiritual existence of saved souls, but the restoration of the entire cosmos. 
when God will be all, in all, under the renewed heaven on the renewed earth. Renewed heaven, renewed earth. That is the hope that we have of our salvation. And that should mean something for how we think about science, how we think about in this life, the years that we have, understanding the created world. A Calvinist who seeks God does not for a moment think of limiting himself to theology and contemplation. Why would he do that, Calvin says? If you want to understand God, why would you just limit yourself to theology? You wouldn't leave the other sciences as of a lower character in the hands of unbelievers, but on the contrary, looking upon it as his task, right? This is actually our duty. It's not just something we should maybe do if we want to. It's our task to know God in all his works, all his works. And so the Calvinist is conscious of having been called. This is a divine calling. I think it's fascinating to see how Kuiper talks about this. Scientific inquiry is a calling given by God to fathom with all the energy of his intellect things terrestrial as well as things celestial, right? Earthly things, things above us, to open to view both the order of creation and the common grace of the God he adores in nature and its wondrous character and the production of human industry and the life of mankind and sociology and the history of the human race. See, Calvin here is not restricting by using the word science, just meaning biology and chemistry or something, right? He's talking about actually things like economics, things like history, things like sociology, right? All these things fall under this heading of science, according to Calvin, because they're all part of the created world. They all have to do with stuff that God has made, whether it's human people and their brains and bodies or the, the ways that we structure our culture the history of how we lived with one another, all these things, according to Calvin, are science, and all of them deserve our study with all the intellectual energy that we have because God cares about them. God is committed to them. God loves them. <clears throat> and I just realized that I totally skipped a page. I'm very sorry about that. Let's go back to the, to the previous page. Somehow I... Y'all see that? I did that. Okay, let's go back. I'm sorry, we'll, we'll get to that point again um, in due time. A little preview there. So on the back of page one, page two, thereby, of course, Calvinism puts an end once and for all to contempt for the world, neglect of the temporal, and undervaluation of cosmical things. I love, I'm not sure if you made that word up, cosmical, but I kind of like it. I think it's great. Cosmical life has regained its worth. Life in the cosmos. Right? Cosmos is the Greek word for the universe, for all creation. Cosmical life has regained its worth not at the expense of things eternal, but by virtue of its capacity as God's handiwork and as a revelation of God's attributes. It is deserving of notice that our best Calvinistic confessions speak of two means, right? not one, whereby we know God, the scriptures, and nature. And still more remarkable it is that Calvin, instead of simply treating nature as an accessorial item, as so many theologians are inclined to do, was rather accustomed to compare the Scripture to a pair of spectacles. We saw this last year when we read through the Institutes. According to Calvin, Scripture is like spectacles, and when you put them on, they enable you to decipher again the divine thoughts written by God's hand in the book of nature. 
Right? God's special revelation in Scripture is not merely an end unto itself. It is actually a means of understanding all things. Right? And it's supposed to give us understanding into the entire universe. Thus vanished every dread possibility that he who occupied himself with nature was wasting his capacities in pursuit of vain and idle things. Right? He's saying if you are a scientist, if you are economic, economist, if you are um, a biologist, right, you are not wasting your time with vain and idle things. No, rather, it is perceived on the contrary that for God's sake, our attention may not be withdrawn from the life of nature and creation, the study of the body regained its place of honor beside the study of the soul, and the social organization of mankind on earth was again looked upon as being well worthy an object of human science, as the congregation of the perfect saints in heaven. I think the way that, that Kuiper is using the term science here, it's, it's broad enough that it covers, I would guess, many of the vocations that you all are called to, right? Um, it's not simply, you know, in being in a lab with a, a white coat. Science, according to, to Kuiper, is the study and the understanding, um, the apprenticeship of, of working in the world, understanding the way in which God has created all things, but also the way in which human beings interact, and as serving that interaction, right? Bettering it, seeking to, to know it, and to, and to make it um, more consistent with all the things that God desires um, for the world. So any thoughts about this, about this commitment that Calvinism has to creation, to God's love for creation, and how we should therefore think about our own vocational callings, and especially this calling towards science. Any thoughts or questions? Great. All right, let's talk about common grace. So Calvinism, according to another plank in this argument about why Calvinism loves science, right, doesn't just endure science, but loves it, is because of common grace. This is actually really interesting, I think. Sin places before us a riddle, Kuiper says which is in itself insoluble. It seems as if of necessity all unbelievers and all unregenerate persons ought to be wicked and repulsive men, right? Haven't you heard us about Calvin? Total depravity, right? You guys know this. All unbelievers should be wicked and repulsive. But this is far from being our experience in actual life, Kuiper says. On the contrary, the old unbelieving world excels in many things. Precious treasures have come down to us from the old heathen civilization. Heathen civilization. In Plato, you find pages which you devour. Cicero fascinates you and bears you along by his noble tones and stirs up in you holy sentiments. And if you consider your own surroundings, that which is reported to you and that which you derive from the studies and literary productions of professed infidels, how much there is which attracts you. It's beautiful with which you sympathize, which you admire. It is not exclusively the spark of genius or the splendor of talent which excites your pleasure in the words and actions of unbelievers, but often the beauty of their character, their zeal, their devotion, their love, their candor, their faithfulness, and their sense of honesty. So Kuiper is basically saying, how can this be? Right? We believe in total depravity. We believe that the human soul and person is unable of good and of itself. So how do we account for the existence of good in this world outside of those who have been regenerated by the Spirit? 
Here's what he says. The answer is common grace. Common grace as opposed to special grace. Sin, according to Calvinism, which is in full accord with the Holy Scriptures, sin and unbridled and unfettered, right? not interfered with, not um, stopped, if sin was left to itself, it would forthwith have led to a total degeneracy of human life. And where do we see that? We see that in the early parts of Genesis, as may be inferred from what was seen in the days before the flood. You all know those chapters, right? God looks out on the earth and there's nothing but wickedness. But God arrested sin in its course in order to prevent the complete annihilation of His divine handiwork. Right? God looked out on the earth, there was nothing but wickedness, but He does not destroy all of it. He maintains Noah. And after Noah comes out of the ark, He makes a covenant with all of creation that we refer to as the Noahic covenant. And this is where we locate especially this understanding of common grace. That God from that point forward was committed to His creation such that He would prevent human sin from ruining it in the same way that it had before the days of Noah. He would hold sin back. He would hold humans back from all that they might do, all that they might do to destroy the house that God had made for them. God arrested sin in its course in order to prevent the complete annihilation of His divine handiwork, which naturally would have followed. He has interfered in the life of the individual, Individual men and women are held back from the full extent of their sin. And he's not just talking about believers here. He's talking in some ways especially about unbelievers. That unbelievers are held back in their degeneracy, in their sin, in their wickedness. He holds back and interferes in the life of mankind as a whole and in the life of nature itself. Right? Even the natural world is affected by common grace. This grace, however, does not kill the core of sin, it's not a complete uh, you know, uh, rebuilding of the human person. It's not salvation. He says it doesn't save unto life eternal, but God, by His common grace, restrains the operation of sin. And man, it's so important that we believe this. If we don't believe in common grace, if we really think that things today are as bad as they would be without God's constant intervention, even in the hearts of unbelievers, we radically underestimate the wickedness of sin. Right? Because there are many ways in which we still live in a good world where people don't just wake up and kill their neighbor. Right? We still see that as an unusual thing rather than a normal thing. But with that's, the reason for that is not because humans are decent people. It's because God is actively, by His common grace, His grace that is everywhere, commonly given, holding back human sin, restraining wickedness. Right? That is why... Especially unbelievers don't wake up and kill one another. That's what Calvin is saying. That's what the scriptures teach. It's, it's, it's because of God's mercy and grace. And apart from regeneration, why we don't kill one another, right? <laughs> Where evil does not come to the surface or does not manifest itself in all its hideousness, we do not owe it to the fact that our nature is not so deeply corrupt, but to God alone. God is the only explanation for this who by His common grace hinders the bursting forth of the flames from the smoking fire, right? He keeps the fire of sin just smoking instead of bursting forth like a bonfire and burning down everything around it. 
We Calvinists never remiss in accusing our sinful nature, yet praise and thank God for making it possible for men to dwell together in a well-ordered society and for restraining us personally. Thank God for common grace. Who knows what it's kept you from doing? Restraining us personally from horrible sins. Moreover, we thank Him for bringing to light all the talents hidden in our race, developing by means of a regular process, the history of mankind, and securing by the same grace for His church on earth a place for the sole of her foot. This confession places the Christian in a quite different position over against life. For then in His judgment, not only the church, but also the world belongs to God, and in both He has to be investigated as the masterpiece of the supreme architect and artificer. So what Calvin is basically saying here in terms of common grace, and I already read that quote on the next page a few minutes ago. Um, What Calvin is saying here about common grace is basically, common grace means that the world is orderly in a way that it would not be without if if sin was not restrained. You can enter into the world um, without fear because of God's restraining grace. It also means that, that unbelievers can speak truth, can dis- study the world and creation and discover true things that you can actually learn from. It's not some kind of arms race, right? There, is, there can be a cooperation. Um, and maybe cooperation is the right word. Maybe it's more like plundering the Egyptians, maybe. But there, there's, an, there's an opportunity for us to learn even um, from those who are not regenerate, those who are not believers, because God's, we can trust that God's common grace is at work in the world. Yes, we may have to question some assumptions that are made in those um, means of scientific inquiry, but there can be true knowledge there that we can glean and learn from and grow from. And really, if you think about whatever work God has called you to, of course you benefit from the knowledge of unbelievers in that, right? Whatever it might be whether it's a domestic calling, whether it's a calling um, that's, that's in an office place or a school, right? You're learning from unbelievers. You, you're dependent upon knowledge that did not just come from Christians. And the reason for that, according to Calvin, is common grace because God withholds the full effects of sin and that should give you a confidence about inquiring in the world and understanding the way in which um, the human race grows in knowledge. Make sense? You have a hand up? Well, I think certainly the the Holocaust obviously was, you know, horrible. Um, You know, six million Jews killed um, is what most historians say, Um, something like that. Uh, And yet, certainly, I think we would say even as bad as that was, the Lord still preserved what we know as the Jewish people um, and in his providence um, even led to the establishment of the nation state of Israel and um, so, yes, I think clearly something like the Holocaust really pushes against this, under, this idea that, that God restrains the wickedness of the human race. And yet I would argue that um, the fact that we view things like that as aberrations, right? Not only the Holocaust, but what Stalin was doing to Ukrainians um, 
in the 1930s and 40s as well. Um, things like what has happened in Uganda um, over the last 20 years, you know, just different places in the world where there's been extreme suffering. We still view those things as not normal, right? Those are abnormal things um, and aberrations from the, the quote-unquote normal course of history. And so I think, I think, and even in those situations, we can talk about how God restrains evil and holds it back from its full end. Hitler was not successful, praise be to God, by his grace in exterminating the Jewish race. Um, um, and that, that's a good thing. And that the, the, the reason for that is God's mercy. Um, so that's, I think that's how I would talk about that. Yeah, Scott and then Jeremy, and I want to move on then. Go ahead. I think another way to think about that is common grace is not evenly distributed. Yeah, it's true. Right. Of insight, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I want to make sure everybody heard what Scott just said. So he's saying we should remember that com- just because it's described as common doesn't mean that the common grace is applied evenly to all people in all times that actually some people, it appears, receive more common grace than others because there's more, they're wiser than others, or they're less wicked than others. And this is true not only for individuals in history, but actually for nations and for cultures. And, and it's interesting, if you look through history, it's largely um, viewed through this lens, a story of God's common grace operating in different ways in different cultures for periods of time, right? It, I don't think it's true that any culture or nation experiences common grace at the expense of others for, you know, eternity, right? It's here, it's at the Roman Empire for a while perhaps, or the Greeks, or the Babylonians in different ways, or, you know, the Chinese culture that's happening. Um, You know, we could argue that common grace was operative in the United States, um, certainly in a greater way for a time. We can argue about whether that's still the case now or not in the same way. But it's interesting to just think about that, how, how cultures experience, yeah, it seems to be a special um, care from God, and that that's something we should give thanks for. All right, Jeremy, real quick, and then I want to move on. You're good? Uh, I was going to mention two parables as well. I particularly only think of the man by the which he had his goats with him. Um, it is interesting, like, the idea of like, the common grace is that, that things are happening for the like, benefit of the church. Really yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point, yeah. And our confessions make this clear that, that common grace, God has a special providence toward the church. And certainly he uses common grace to protect the church and to care for it. You see this with the people of Israel in the Old Testament that um, actually God shelters Judah under uh, the Babylonian rule, um, that he keeps, he's keeping Israel safe under Roman, the Roman Empire. And that's why it's such an act of apostasy and rebellion by the kings of Judah to rebel against Babylon and in the first century for the leaders of Israel to rebel against the Roman Empire because they're trying to cast off God's sovereign care for them. Um, And that's exactly right, that God often uses uh, common grace as a means especially to protect his church, and you can see that 
over the last 2,000 years as well, right? There's a reason why the printing press took place in Western Europe right before the Reformation, right? That wasn't just an accidental thing, um, but in God's providence, that was a, a means of reforming his church in a really key way. Um, and we could talk about all sorts of ways in which that kind of thing works out. All right, let me, let me get to this last point um, in the few minutes we have remaining, because I think it's important. So he says, this, he wants to talk about Calvinism and the conflict, quote-unquote, between faith and science. He says, notice that I do not speak of a conflict between faith and science. Such a conflict does not exist. That's fundamental to the argument Kuiper's making here, that there's no conflict between faith and science. Every science, in a certain degree, starts from faith. This is such a fundamental insight. I hope that you know, this is something for you to take away today, that scientists have faith regardless of whether or not they're believers. Of course they do. And on the contrary, faith, which does not lead to science, is mistaken faith or superstition. But real, genuine faith is not. Every science presupposes faith in self, in our self-consciousness. Presupposes faith in the accurate working of our senses, right? That you can actually see the world and, it's, and describe it in real ways. That's an act of faith. Can you prove that? No, you cannot prove that, right? Philosophers have tried this. It's impossible to prove with any certainty. You have to have faith that your senses are actually reflecting reality as it is. There's no way for you to have actual indubitable certainty about that reality. Faith in the correctness of laws of thought presupposes faith in some universal hidden behind the special phenomena. This is what science is. It says, if I observe this phenomenon over here, I can predict that it's going to be the same over there if the conditions are the same, right? That is faith. How do you know that? Unless you observe every single phenomena, you, which you can't, and so you take it on faith. <clears throat> presupposes faith in life, and especially presupposes faith in principles from which we proceed, which signifies that all these indispensable axioms needed in a productive scientific investigation do not come to us by proof but are established in our judgment by our inner conception and given with our self-consciousness. There is no conflict between science and faith because everyone has faith. Everyone presupposes belief in things that they cannot prove with indubitable certainty. This is fundamental, actually, for scientific inquiry. If you're interested in this idea, I recommend highly the work of Michael Polanyi, who was a 20th century philosopher, scientific philosopher, who's also uh, religious in many ways, and, and, he, and he's, he works in epistemology, how we understand knowledge. Reading him was fundamentally shifted my life in seminary in many ways, but, but he, this is his basic argument, that all human actions require commitment of faith, um, and, and that's the only way that knowledge of any kind, scientific or otherwise, is possible. So Michael Polanyi, I think, builds on what Kuiper's saying here. I'd recommend him to you. So what is the real conflict in science? Kuiper says it is the normalists and the abnormalists. The normalists and the abnormalists. Now you probably read that and think, I want to be a normalist, but you don't, actually, as I'll show you. Hence it follows that the conflict is not between faith and science, but between the assertion that the cosmos as it exists today is either in a normal or abnormal condition. If it is normal, then it moves by means of an eternal evolution from its potencies to its ideal. 
But if the cosmos in its present condition is abnormal, then a disturbance has taken place in the past, and only a regenerating power can warrant it the final attainment of its goal. What would that disturbance have been? The fall of humanity, right? The head of creation entrusted to Adam and to Eve falls and creation is affected by that fall. That's a fundamental faith commitment that we have. So we're abnormalists, Christian believers, Bible believers. Only a regenerating power, only the intervention of something can bring creation to the final attainment of its goal. It's not going to get there on its own. This and no other is the principle antithesis, which separates the thinking minds in the domain of science into two opposite battle arrays. Materially, the normalists reject the very idea of creation, not nature itself, matter, material things, but creation as an event in time and space, and can only accept evolution. An evolution without a point of departure in the past, right? This, of course, is the great problem with um, you know, complete naturalistic explanations of things is where did anything come from in the first place, right? You can't ever get back to that place. And eternally evolving itself in the future until lost in the boundless infinite. The abnormalists, on the other hand, who do justice to relative evolution, here he's talking about microevolution, right? The change of species over time in small ways, right? The abnormalists, on the other hand, who do justice to relative evolution, but adhere to primordial creation over against an evolution in, fight, in, in a fightum, oppose the position of the normalists with all their might. They maintain exorably the conception of man as an independent species because in him alone is reflected the image of God. They conceive of sin as the destruction of our original nature and as rebellion against God. And for that reason, they postulate and maintain the miraculous the natural world cannot save us, right? We who must die demand a miracle, according to Alden. Maintain the miraculous as the only means to restore the abnormal, the miracle of regeneration, the miracle of the scriptures, the miracle in the Christ, descending as God with his life into ours. And thus, owing to this regeneration of the abnormal, they continue to find the ideal norm not in the natural, but in the triune God. I think it's fascinating the way that he puts that, this idea that if we're abnormalists, we, we believe that, that creation needs actually the intervention of God to attain its final goal. Not faith and science, therefore, but two scientific systems, or if you choose, two scientific elaborations are opposed to each other, each having its own faith. Faith is operative in both of these systems. These two scientific systems of the normalists and the abnormalists are not relative opponents, walking together halfway, sort of friendly, and further on, peaceably suffering one another to choose different paths. But they are both in earnest, disputing with one another the whole domain of life, right? We don't have a just mild disagreement if you're a normalist versus an abnormalist. Actually, you have a fundamental disagreement that changes everything. And they cannot desist from the constant endeavor to pull down to the ground the entire edifice of their respective convert, controverted assertions and all the supports included upon, upon which those assertions rest. All right, I'm going to close there this morning. Um, at the end of the essay, um, Kuiper argues for a renovation of the university system and for a reestablishment of distinctively 
Calvinistic, by which he just means classical Reformed Christian scientist. And I think it's really important just to say this, that, that we should think about if, if, we, if what, Cal, what Kuiper is saying here is true, about what it means to do science in a distinctively Christian way. Yes, we believe in common grace. Yes, we can share knowledge and principles um, with unbelievers. But I think we really have to think about this. If there is this distinction between those who believe that, that God created all things and continues to work in all things and must intervene in all things in order to bring about the renewal of all creation, that is a fundamentally different starting point from someone who doesn't believe that, who thinks somehow all of this is just the way it's always been and always will be, and we just have to sort of understand it in that way. So what does it look like to do science from a distinctively Christian starting point? I think this is a really important thing for us to think about. Um, I, I tend to think that human history is in early ages still, and my hope is that over time, as we really work out these principles and a love for creation, a love for resurrection, a love for the renewal of all things, that we will see as the church investment in the sciences as important, more important even than we do now. And we'll really explore together what it means to do science and scientific inquiry in a distinctively Christian way. And if you're a young person today who's still thinking about their vocation, I would encourage you to consider this, right? Consider this divine calling, which, which Kuiper talks about. Uh, it's a vocation, just like I have a vocation to be a minister. There's a vocation to understand the created world and to do so in a distinctively Christian way and so to understand God himself. And we need that as believers. We need um, to be engaged in this. It's, it is a high calling, and it's one that matters. So I just want to leave you with that thought um, as we close this morning. All right, let's, let's stand and let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for, for stuff. We thank you for material, for created things. We thank you that we are created, Father, and that you love our bodies, and that you promise that in Christ they will be raised from the dead on the last day to inhabit all of the creation which you love and will maintain and will renew through Christ. Father, help us to have a deep desire to know the mysteries and the wonder of the complexity of this universe that you've placed us in the midst of. For we know that it reveals you, your majesty, your wonder, your love, your righteousness. Father, I pray that we would wrestle with these things, with this calling to understand this world and the way in which you love it. Give us your heart, Father, for this world. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.